Good morning. I went to the men's wild game feed yesterday, and I survived. <laughs> I, I, was, I was out of, uh, out of town, out, out of the country last year at the first wild game feed, so I was intrigued and enjoyed yesterday's uh, wild game feed very much. And I even had armadillo. Armadillo. Do I look shocked? I was shocked when a tray of armadillo was brought to me, and I said, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I mean, it's funny how certain meats all look the same. You know, yeah, it's wild this or wild that, but it was actually armadillo. But it was sausage, and one of the uh, hallmarks of sausage is it's, it's, it's heavily seasoned, and... <clears throat> That was a saving grace. Uh, so. We had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun. If you've never been, I hope that you'll join us. Lord willing, we'll have it again next year. So, uh, And thank you, Michael, and all the men who helped make that happen. This morning, uh, we're going to be looking at the anointing of Jesus in John chapter 12. We'll uh, read verses 1 through 11. And I think it's appropriate because... Uh, the anointing in John comes before the triumphal entry, which we'll look at next week, and then, of course, Resurrection Sunday. I have to admit, I feel very unqualified. This is a very touching episode, and the more so that you meditate and reflect upon it, the more it uh, touches you deeply. So it is my prayer, and this is a prayer uh, every week, but it is my prayer this morning that the Lord will take the offering of this message and apply it bountifully in your life. If you have your gospel open to John chapter 12, I'm going to read, read with me. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave him a dinner. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to be betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money... He used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have always with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus 
whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Mary worships Jesus. Can there be any question that she's worshiping? She lowers herself. She gets on her knees. She stoops at the feet of Jesus, removes his sandals, smears his feet, anointing him with costly ointment. You have to understand her actions quiet the room. What Mary does is out of place. She is out of place. The conversations, the traffic, the clatter, the movement of Martha, everything slowly freezes into an awkward stillness. A silence, painful with tension. All eyes, every eye is on Mary. Yet her eyes, her hands, her whole being is devoted to the feet of Jesus. What's she doing? The answer engorges the senses. Her actions fill every eye. The silence fills, floods every ear. The impropriety of what she's doing fills every heart. And the fragrance, it overwhelms their, their nostrils. They can swallow it. You would think it hard to move. So taut, so stiff is the atmosphere. But Mary flows effortlessly, purposefully, almost as though no one else is in the room. As if a gentle breeze has lifted her arms, she undoes her hair, her glory, and it it tumbles, it, it carpets, it drapes the feet of Jesus. Her head is down. It's tilted. Almost as if she's going to kiss his feet. Her fingers are oily with 
strings of hair, and they trace the features of his ankles, the arches, the, the toes, tenderly inching and ebbing, absorbing, and smearing, and anointing. What a waste, someone barks. And with her head lowered, nearly resting on the hands that hold the very feet of Jesus, she feels the words vibrate in her hands. Leave her alone. And those words are royal. Those words are royalty. Worship is a royal anointing. What's so powerful about her worship is how others see it. And in the tension, the scandal, we realize that to most, worship is a waste. But to Mary, it's a royal waste of time. And the Gospel of John sees it that way too. John calls it an anointing. The honor of kings, I think it will increase the fragrance of our own worship to think of worship as an anointing. I think we'll find it fitting this morning as we prepare to observe the death of Jesus, our Lord, even as she observed the death of Jesus, her Lord. We take the bread and cup, and in it we anoint. She took the ointment, and others frowned upon it. I think we'll also find it fitting as we look to Easter and the resurrection in this act, Mary honored him who is the resurrection and the life, even as she knew that he and he alone can make the dead come to life. I think we'll find in her worship something that enriches instructs and encourages our own worship because in her worship we see a devotion in contrast to those who find her actions scandalizing. And we find an honesty, a transparency 
and we find a thoughtfulness. And in her devotion, honesty, and thoughtfulness, we're, we're taught about worship. And so let's look at the royalty of devoted worship. In verses 1 through 3, Mary, in the midst of a dinner devoted to Jesus, in honor of Jesus, and in the midst of all the hustle and bustle, she changes, as it were, the occasion into an act of personal worship. We really shouldn't watch others worship. I mean, we should be worshiping ourselves. But that's the thing about devotion. It's exclusive. It gives, in devotion, in dedication, focus and first place to the one we worship, to Jesus. It could be used for other things. But Mary says, I'm wasting it on Jesus. John sets Mary as an example. There's something really true and real about her devotion. We see that in that her actions scandalize others. Judas is typical. He sees her actions in a way that brings judgment. He sees what she's doing as a waste, and he calls attention to it. And in a way, it threatens to devalue, to kind of suck the worth that she's pouring into it. That's so critical to what we do when we worship. It's the worth that we pour into it. I've been around for a while, and I've been in so many worship settings. Of course, and I need to remind you, uh, just as Mary here turned this occasion uh, into a very special act of worship, we can turn any occasion into a devoted act of worship. But just for a moment, I want to talk about those dedicated times of worship. This is a time of such worship. We dedicate this time unto the Lord. And in my long experience now, having walked with the Lord nearly 45 years, I've been in so many dedicated occasions of worship. And I have to tell you, I've seen a lot, and some are contemporary services of worship. And in those contemporary occasions where worship that's contemporary is the style, I have to tell you, sometimes uh, worship styles can be like you're given a cloak, you know, uh, a uniform, 
almost as though when you enter, it's given you, and sometimes it doesn't feel very comfortable. I have to admit that sometimes I felt my worship is too stiff in a contemporary service. Um, I've felt like I need to loosen up. I've felt like I need to clap more or raise my hands higher. Sometimes I feel as though the cloak of the style of worship doesn't fit quite right for me. And then in other services, classical services, uh, liturgical services, I've felt that my worship style or feeling the cloak being put on me didn't feel quite right because I didn't feel dignified enough. My, my style felt a little too chirpy in comparison, not solemn enough. Sometimes I felt awkward because I didn't know when to kneel or when to stand, or I felt as though I wasn't as comfortable or familiar with the creed that others seemed to know much better than me. Whether your style or the style of the services, contemporary or classic, low church or high church, Mary is a, an antidote to that. Mary comes with a certain nakedness of heart, utterly transparent. And she comes to the feet of Jesus. That's dedication. That's devotion. That's exclusivity. And there's something about worship that's devoted to Jesus, not distracted, not wasted on anything else. It's very important about the heart and the transparency and the honesty of worship. There's a royalty about worship that's devoted. And there's a royalty about honest worship. Judas finds Mary's honesty a bit too honest. He finds fault in her worship. John tells us something in his gospel that is not told us in any of the others, that that Judas is a pilferer, that he dips into that which is devoted, that which is given to the service of others, into the treasury that's dedicated to the poor. But others don't know that. Others in the room don't know that. He sees her worship as a waste, a frivolous waste. And I must say, it's a compelling argument. This expensive ointment, and this would be worth a year's wage, could have better served the poor, made a difference, made an impact, maybe changed the life of another. That's a powerful argument. But John lets us know that His words 
cloak a heart of dishonesty. And it's a contrast with the honesty of Mary's heart. He cloaks it in pious concern, but he's really calling her worship a waste, judging her worship as a waste because he's judging her worship in terms of his own advantage, his own payoff. It's interesting, the Gospel of Mark tells us that others chimed in. Others grumbled. This is being wasted when it could be given to the poor. Perhaps they don't harbor a heart of dishonesty like Judas. They're just looking at it most practically. Surely this could have done some good, could have made a real difference in the life of someone else. There's a lot to be learned here because sometimes it's just those kinds of judgments that occupy our hearts. We evaluate worship on the basis of our personal gain. What do I get out of this? Just as Judas evaluated Mary. Or like the others, some of Jesus' disciples, no doubt, were compelled by the altruism of that argument. What good is this waste when it could have served others? And we can leave church thinking the same way. What did it do for me? Sometimes when we worship, we gauge the whole value of the worship kind of like is illustrated here in the judgment of Mary's worship. What do I get out of this? What's it do for me? And sometimes we can leave thinking if I didn't get anything out of it that the worship was lame or worthless. Such a perspective is really self-centered, leaving God and the rest of the congregation out of the worship. Or sometimes we leave looking at it as do the others here who look at Mary's worship as failing to serve anybody or accomplish anything. Sometimes we want to know whether the worship helps the church grow numerically. Does anyone get any value out of that worship? Does it suit the market? Is it as good as what other churches offer? I suppose that's a step up from that personal, self-centered approach, because at least, you know, a person is thinking about whether it benefits others. But it's still very human-centered, not God-centered. We can leave the presence of Jesus asking, what did I get out of it? Or what did the church gain from it? But Mary suggests we have it backward. 
Worship isn't about getting something from Jesus, although we certainly always are benefited in the presence of Jesus. Mary suggests, though, that worship is about not getting something, but offering something to Jesus. And what if the true value and measure of worship is what I leave at the feet of Jesus? What what do I leave at the feet of Jesus? That's why I think if we think about worship as an anointing, I've come to anoint Jesus because I find him worthy And there are these reasons in my heart and in my head as to why he is worthy of my worship. Worship is not for the disengaged. At its heart, worship is engagement. Not just our emotions, but our minds as well. And when we think of The thoughtfulness that I want to show us is a part of Mary's worship. We realize the royalty of thoughtfulness as a very important part of worship. We see as intense as Mary's worship is, it's informed by a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. In Mark's gospel, Chapter 14, verse 8, it's clear that Mary understood the symbolism of her actions. Jesus said, she has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. Mary seems to be the only one who's grasped the approach of Jesus' death. And in verses 7 and 8 here in John chapter 12, Jesus makes this clear. This act of hers has been prompted by a level of understanding that's apparently eluded the others. He says, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. It's clear that from what's preceded that Mary's exhausted all of the ointment in this anointing. There's nothing to be kept. So the keeping has to do with her heart, the purpose and intent of what she's doing. The others see it as a royal waste. Jesus says it's something very, very special to him. I really think worship should be a royal waste, a total waste, exclusive and wholly devoted from a heart that's honest and genuine and authentic, but also a heart that's full of thought and motivated and driven by a knowing, a mindfulness, an understanding of why I worship and who I worship. And that's what characterizes Mary. John Ortberg warns us against the extremes. The extremes of the either or. 
that we can fall into when we worship. He says some churches specialize in generating intense emotional experiences. Ortberg warns that this kind of worship is sometimes shallow or can become shallow, artificial, rarely reflective. He calls this kind of worship scarecrow worship. He says it would be better if it only had a brain. On the other hand, he warns some churches focus keenly on cognitive correctness. They recite great creeds, distribute reams of biblical information, yet the heart and the spirit do not realize, are not seized with the wonder and the passion that characterize those in Scripture who must fall on their faces when they encounter the living God. This he calls ten-man worship. And Ortberg laments, if only it had a heart. It's Mary, bowed in humility at the feet of Jesus, who shows us a third way. She's not afraid to bear her heart before our Lord. She's not afraid to express herself in action, but it's action and devotion that are fueled by what we would call theological reflection or the truth about God that that she understands. And it's an understanding that informs her worship of Jesus. It's an understanding of who he is that informs her. In fact, it is in the previous chapter in verse 27, Lazarus has died. Jesus, we're told, and this is quite interesting in verse 3 and 5, we're told Jesus loves this family. Lazarus, Mary, Martha, loves them. I think Jesus loved many, but we're not told that he loves them. Anywhere else in the Gospel of John is it used of anyone else but the beloved disciple. It's rather striking. And there's this uh, point at which the news of Lazarus' death comes to Jesus. His disciples alert him. And Jesus makes his way. There's great risk. There's danger involved. And Jesus makes his way to just outside the city. Martha goes out to meet him. Mary stays and is mourning in her household and she's surrounded by people comforting and encouraging her. And Martha, in her conversation with Jesus, recognizes you are the Christ, the Messiah. You are the Son of God, the one who is to come. I suspect that's a knowledge that 
Mary and Lazarus shared. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he sends Martha to get Mary. And Martha enters into the midst of all this mourning. And she tells Mary, Jesus wants you. The teacher wants you. And Mary at once leaves. And even those who are there to comfort her are her are startled by the fact that she just gets up without explanation and leaves to go to Jesus, and they follow. And she comes to the feet of Jesus, and she falls at his feet in that dirt, in the rock. And she says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She knows Jesus is more than a man. She knows that he has power to drive away sickness, to command nature. And like her sister, she knows there'll be a resurrection someday in the day of the Lord when God returns. But it is on this occasion as Mary is weeping at his feet And he is so moved that he demonstrates something that they could not imagine. That he is the one who can bring the dead to life and raises Lazarus. And she who wept at his feet now knows that this whom she adored as he who could command sickness and nature, is more. He has power over the greatest power, death. And so she comes to his feet and anoints him. It's interesting. I didn't mention this. I know of no place. And I consulted great scholars and men who would certainly know more than me, women who would certainly know more than me in the study of such things. You never anoint feet. Did you know that? You never pour out perfume, nard, things so expensive on the feet You pour it on the head. There's only one exception. When you anoint the body of one who is dead. Mary knew that she was anointing Jesus because she knew that he who gave life for his message for his revolutionary truth would suffer death in the days to come. And she anointed him. How fitting that we anoint him 
with the bread and the cup this morning. We don't use an expensive nard. We use what Jesus himself ordained, the bread and the cup. This is my body, which is for you. My body, which is for you. And the cup, the new covenant. We know that he submitted to death for our sake. But in doing so, he inaugurated a new covenant, a source of new life and joy. And that is what we worship, what we acknowledge this morning. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it is uh, so suitable that we, even in the light of Mary's example, but so much more in the light of your Son, we find our worship imperfect, partial, unworthy. Our very best is not enough. And when we think of Jesus submitting himself to death for our sakes, we realize, Lord, that your holiness is a debt too great for us but not for Jesus. And as we're about to hold this this bread, this body in our hands, Father, we realize that you have done it all for us. Perhaps our greatest worship is to acknowledge it, realize it. It's not what we can do, it's what you've done. And this cup is also a symbol of the joy that should flood our heart when we realize when we thoughtfully understand what you've done for us, that we're freed and liberated to serve you, to know you, to be accepted by you because of what you have done for us, that great joy is also a tribute. It's something that you want to adorn us, to characterize us. Father, as we take this bread and this cup, We do so with gratitude. And we do so in the name of Jesus, in whom we pray and praise you. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had blessed, he broke it. This is my body, which is for you. It's the Lord who says to you, Take and eat. In the same way, after supper, the cup also, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, if you will, pass the cups toward the center. Thank you, men, for picking them up for us. I want to remind you that we have the opportunity to give to the Deacons Fund. It's devoted, it's dedicated to serving others and meeting needs in the love of Jesus Christ.
Will you stand with me? Well, this has been a royal waste of time. You understand me, right? I hope that you've left something at the feet of Jesus. May he cause his face to shine upon you. Bring joy to your heart in the assurance of his love, his forgiveness. May you know his joy. God bless you. Go in the name of the Lord. You're dismissed.